Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome back, Dress listeners. Today, we um, continue our conversation with Jessica Pusher, collections manager of the 50,000 plus piece fashion and dress collection at the Chicago History Museum. And today she is back to share more incredible stories behind some of the specific objects in the collection. So we're just gonna go right ahead and drop back into the conversation. But something I also really love about the Chicago History Museum collection in particular is that it speaks to the social and cultural significance of dress. Because so many pieces in your collection come with an attached provenance that makes it unique to Chicago. It makes that garment unique because you know who wore it, you know where it came from, you know its significance historically. Um, you know, be it clothing from Marshall Fields or those garments that you mentioned worn by Washington, uh, General Washington, President Washington, by Abraham Lincoln. I'd love if you could tell us about your collection of garments worn by Lincoln, actually, and his wife, Mary Todd. And we've done an episode on the dressmaker, Elizabeth Keckley, who, um, you know, the, an enslaved, once enslaved woman who brought her freedom in the antebellum South and made her way to D.C. to become one of the city's premier dressmakers, dressing, among many others, Mary Todd Lincoln. Uh, you have a couple of her garments, maybe more in your collection. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more. Yes. So... In the collection of the museum, we have um, well over 300 objects related to the Lincolns and around 18 pieces directly related to Mary Todd herself. So like I said before, prior to the fire in 1871, we did have books and manuscripts related to the Lincolns then, but of course we lost those in the fire. Um, It all goes back to that fire. (laughs) (laughs) So in, once again, um, I'm going to talk about um, Charles Gunther. So in 1920, when the Historical Society purchased the collection of Charles F. Gunther, who had assembled a large collection of Lincoln material, which was displayed at his Libby Prison War Museum. Um, So in this collection, there was a black velvet cloak reportedly worn by Mary Todd Lincoln on the night her husband was assassinated. Gunther purchased this cloak from W.H. Louder Milk and Company in Washington, D.C., which was a book and antiques dealer in 1890. With this cloak came a notarized affidavit accompanied with the bill of sale signed by Elizabeth Keckley. So Keckley had been with Mary Todd um, shortly after Mr. Lincoln was assassinated. And when Mary Todd was leaving the White House, she was giving objects away. Um, that's when they possibly believe that this cloak was given to Miss Keckley. Miss um, Keckley also later joined Mary Todd in New York City a few years later. Um, Mary Todd had decided 
to sell a lot of her very expensive gowns that she had um, purchased while in the White House in New York City to help raise money for herself. Right. She was in a little bit of a financial bind at this point. Yeah. And she had written to um, Elizabeth Keckley and asked her if she would come and help her and be with her. And it was not well received. There are some illustrations out there you can see of Mary Todd, you know, selling her old dresses. And she was kind of made a laughing stock and um, she kind of went home. She went back to um, Illinois, defeated at that point. In 1868, Elizabeth Keckley published her memoir, Behind the Scenes, or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. The book was intended to offer a sympathetic view of Mary Todd Lincoln and hopefully to help her raise money for the former first lady. It was not well received and ultimately ended the relationship between them. The museum, we actually own an original uh, 1868 printing of this book in our research center. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I think is pretty incredible. You could also view it on Google Books as well. Um, they have a copy there. So the museum has a, you know, a notarized um, affidavit from um, Keckley saying that it came from Mrs. Lincoln. We have two dresses as well. Um, one is currently on view at the Peabody Essex exhibition made it. Now, with most Lincoln objects, we say purportedly worn by because these things, especially the things that came through Gunther, he didn't always keep records of exactly who he got it from or exactly where he got it from. So we have these pieces and we can't 100% say they were Worn by Mrs. Lincoln, we have more information that says that was, but I can't prove it 100%. Especially with the dresses that we do have, I have no documentation that 100% says these were created by Elizabeth Keckley. Our white and green buffalo plaid dress has the very clean lines, similar to other Keckley dresses, but you know, there's no way for us to 100% say it was designed by her or not. She did not put labels in her clothes. Right. I was going to say, she's a contemporary of Worth, but Worth was kind of one of the pioneering influences. He's not necessarily the first, but to put his actual label in the garments that wasn't really standard before him. We have a, a Lincoln hat. I actually have two Lincoln hats. So one that we got through the Gunther collection. Purportedly, Mr. Lincoln was on his way to D.C. Um, a entrepreneurial young hatter in uh, New York City said, Mr. Lincoln, Mr. Lincoln, I have a brand new hat for you. Would you like, please take this? And he took it and gave his old hat to this gentleman who then later sold it to Gunther. Wow. That's a great story. <laughs> I know. I have another hat that a family donated to us, I believe in the 20s, and their relative had been at a speech given by Mr. Lincoln, and Mr. Lincoln was not wearing a hat, and this gentleman was like, please, Mr. Lincoln, take my hat. It is very cold. Take my hat. He wore the gentleman's hat and then afterwards gave it back. So, you know, there's no way to 100% corroborate, you know, these to prove 100%. Nowadays, when you take an, an object to collection, you know, we want as much documentation, history, provenance, that kind of thing. But with objects that are this old, 
we can only go by the information we have. Yeah, understandably. And I mean, it makes a great story regardless, right? So if you can present it and share it. Have you been able to like compare your hats? Are they the same size at least? So when it comes to the Lincoln hat, it is on this extremely beautiful mount that has been specially built for this hat. And it lives in this beautiful box, archival box, and I don't ever touch it. (laughs) Because you don't ever want to be the person who is responsible for hurting the hat. So I've taken the hat out of the box, but I don't pick it up from I've never turned it over. I don't know what the inside looks like because it is far too precious of an effect for me to handle just to examine it in such a way. You know, um, I leave that kind of examination up to our conservators because they know really what to do, how to handle it. And there's certain things like that. I mean, a lot like um, our John Adams inaugural suit um, is very fragile. Um, It's starting to powder the silk on it. And it's one of those pieces that I just, I open the box. (laughs) I don't touch it. Um, (laughs) Very similar with our Poiré Sorbet gown. It is in a box in this special mount. So it's actually suspended in a box so that the metal wire around the skirt is not crushed, it's kind of suspended. And it's on this special pad and all this stuff. And I've opened the lid of the box, pulled back the paper, and that's it. <laughs> and then I put it back away. Um, because it's it's far too fragile. And, you know, you need multiple people to move things in a collection. Um, you know, with a little hat or something like that, maybe you just need one person. But with larger objects, you need two people to hoist things up. Going back to Charles James, they are personally the bane of my existence because in order to move a Charles James dress, you need four, five, six people because it's like moving a building. These things are so, they're like, you know, sculptures. They're huge. We had to move a box from one side of the room to the other. And I think there was five of us and we had a cart with us too. This thing was enormous and they take up so much room and they're heavy. And it's just, you know, for one dress, for one Charles James dresses, I could probably store 200 Halstons. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> That's a great comparison. Just, it really is. So I love Halston. They're light. You don't have to wear underwear. You just slip it on the mannequin. It's good to go. It's just, they're fabulous. Oh, I love a Halston. People always ask me like, oh, why don't you like the Charles James? I'm like, do you know how heavy those are? <laughs> Oh my and gosh. You, so you guys store them in boxes. I think like places like FIT has invisible mounts like specifically built for them. So they're just like padded and they stay that way and hang. So we we have them everywhere. So I have, we have several, we have three of them on mounts. And then I have, not all of our Charles James dresses are, we have suits, you know, we have one of his, um, I want to call it the mermaid the mermaid dress, right. but it's this the siren. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I soft sculptures, they're softer, they're not, they don't have all the boning and stuff like that. But you know, our butterfly, our swan, um, clover, that kind of thing. It's like a six foot circumference or something crazy. The swan is really something else, I have to tell you. And but you know, I don't have enough room in my collection 
to put all of them hanging on mounts, on custom mounts. I have three like that. And then I have, I think, three other of the larger ones, you know, in huge boxes um, that take up massive quantities of room. And the same thing with a lot of the ebony stuff that came back. You know, I have these enormous boxes with some Bill Blast, some Gallant, just some, you know, some of these crazy gorgeous ensemble, some courage, and they take up a ton of room, but you need that space so that, you know, the dress can properly stay in storage, but then you have no room to put anything else. So it's, it's a really tough balancing act. But one that you have dedicated your career to. And I'm yes. sure there's some people listening here who are, you know, you're really peaking and sparking their interest. And it's such an interesting perspective um, that I really appreciate you sharing it. Because these are those kind of behind the scenes things you just don't think about or know when you go to an exhibition. You know, you're getting the finished product. So you've shared some of the provenance or questionable provenance, I should say, um, about some of your Abraham Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln objects. Are there any other interesting stories that you have are attached to objects in the collection? Um, I know there's some fab- other fabulous pieces. You talked about the Poiré gown. I also happen to know you have a couple fabulous worths in your collection that might be worth mentioning. Yes, we have about 50 worths in the collection. Wow. Yes, designed either by um, Charles Frederick Worth himself or through the House of Worth, through his various sons and whatnot. We have one of the earliest Worths. Uh, It's from 1861, and it was purchased by Mrs. Cyrus Hall McCormick of the McCormicks who developed the mechanical thresher. And um, we actually have a portrait of her painted in it. And it's another one of the pieces that people can view on our website as well. And it tends to be one of the earlier ones out there. So we get a lot of requests from around the world for this piece. Um, gosh, other words. So I do a lot of tours for colleges in Chicago. So we have many, many colleges. Um, the Art Institute of Chicago has a, um, a design school. There's several design schools, lots of theatrical design classes as well that come through that want to see various things. And worth tends to be one of those pieces they want to see. So, and I try to pull different things because it's not good to constantly pull the same thing because the wear and tear on the object. So I try to pull different things. So one day before I had to go in a meeting, I needed to find a worth. And this is before we really were putting a lot of images in there. So I looked up in my data management software, found a worth, found where it's located, went ahead, pulled it out, and took a photo of it because I was like, wow, this is this is a really beautiful piece. Wow, it's really <laughs> incredible. Awesome. Took a photo of it, went to this meeting, and like most people, while I was in the meeting, I was posting um, to Instagram and didn't think much of it, did that. And then a couple hours later, checked Instagram, and all of a sudden, I had more people... <laughs> posting on this thing that I ever have. I was like, oh goodness, what have I done? And unbeknownst to me, because I am a generalist, I have so many things I have to look after, take care of, that there's not one time period in history that I am an expert on. It's just that I can't be that way. So what I happened to come upon was a worth ironwork design dress. So the fabric of this dress looks like ironwork, like, you know, an iron gate. And the Met has a very, very famous one, which you can see on their website. It's a white dress with black design, and it's incredible, you know, and it's very stunning. 
So I just also happened to find, this is a different McCormick stress, um, Sarah Day McCormick, and it's from 1898-1900, right around there. And it is a magenta or raspberry, a deep pink colored dress, um, the same ironwork design, different placement of the pattern. And there is a lot of lace and um, rhinestones around the bust. And the sleeves are a little bit different. But it kind of harkens back to when I was talking about how the ladies of Chicago were always trying to one of the ladies of New York City. <laughs> this really goes back and kind of talks, it kind of goes back to that, like, oh, you've got a black and white one, or uh, I think they, I think that it also has a green one as well. Well, she was like, I'm going to have this magenta colored one with more lace and more rhinestones. And I think I even put the wrong date on it. So I had all these people like, that can't be that. It has to be. And I was like, oh goodness, what have I got myself into? Um, so that just what happened to be this happenstance because I didn't know we have it. I don't think any of my past curators knew that it was there. And nobody knew that there was a pink one in existence. You know, people <laughs> were like, there's a pink one? Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, that, that, was, that was so cool. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And then another one. So once again, talking about how Chicago had these American princesses, Mary Curzon, 
people may know because she, her husband was the viceroy to India. And so she was the vicerine to India. I believe that's how you say <laughs> that. Before she got married, her name was Mary Leiter. And her father had been the gentleman Levi Leiter, along with Marshall Field, who had established Marshall Fields and Co. So she came from a very wealthy family. And most people in fashion history know her because of her worth gown, the peacock dress. And it had this incredible embroidery with gold thread. And then it had the beetle wings. So it, you know, it looks like um, emeralds on it. You know, it's a beautiful dress. I believe it's in the Museum of Bath, the Fashion Museum of Bath. I believe that's who has that dress. Well, lo and behold, going through family histories and our gowns, I come to find that we have her sister, her younger sister, Nancy's clothing in our collection. And Nancy also had lots of beautiful words. Nothing, of course, as gorgeous as the peacock dress, but just as gorgeous. Her actual um, pink tea gown has been on view quite a few times before. Um, and that also you can view on our website. And a lot of times as a collection, in collections and in curatorial, you have to figure out family connections. You have to do so much research because a daughter, a daughter-in-law from a cousin donated all of these dresses. And, you know, you have to go back and do all these research to find out, oh, this person is related to this person. And this is why it's so important. And to find all of this information, because a lot of times a person who donated the object didn't wear it. You know, usually after someone has passed away is when it comes to us and it could come to us many different ways from many different family members or friends. And if you don't do your research and if you don't get that information at the time of the donation, then you might lose all this really interesting historical significance. So, um, that was just kind of interesting. And Mary Curzon had three daughters. She never had a son. She died quite young. And she's kind of the um, inspiration behind the mother and daughters from Downton Abbey. So it's just kind of this interesting kind of full circle, <laughs> weird little things. But it talks about, you know, everybody thinks of like the Vanderbilts in New York City and those being the industrial American princesses. It's like, no, they were also coming from the Midwest as well. You know, there was a lot of people making a lot of money um, in Chicago and other, you know, Detroit and things like that. And, you know, very interesting stories um, coming out of there. And that's why collections like ours have these incredible pieces in them because these women were traveling and visiting, you know, the world and being related to royalty and things like that, <laughs> and then donating their clothes to our collection. So that's why people are like, how did you guys get this? It's like, well, a lot of people had wealth and they bought a lot of stuff. And then when they died, it all came here, you know? <laughs> so that's how it kind of ended up. Yeah, so the Chicago History Museum has this incredible, expansive haute couture collection spanning centuries, but not everything in the collection is haute couture. And I'm hoping you can tell us, or fashion, um, you know, you have examples of fancy dress, you have, you know, more utilitarian garments, uniforms. You also have one very specific garment that I believe you came across that has a really quite horrible past, perhaps, and a very interesting provenance attached to it. And I'm hoping you can tell us about the KKK robe in your collection and perhaps how it came to be there in the first place. 
Yes. So um, a little background. Back when I was doing our inventory at our offsite location, you go through hundreds of racks of clothes and you don't, um, at the time before we had inventory, we really didn't know what we were going to come across. So we happened to hit a section of men's clothing. We don't just have women's clothing. We have a huge amount of men's clothing as well that doesn't get viewed quite as much. And I personally love a, a well-tailored suit, a men's suit. Uh, as someone who has dressed a lot of mannequins for exhibition, a men's suit is the easy. I think one of the easiest things to do and looks the best with the little smallest amount of work. <laughs> so going through and inventorying this rack, it was a strange rack of sports clothes. I think there was a ski, um, like snowsuit, things like that. And I, you know, going through, I got this next thing out and was recording the information. And then I kind of really looked like, what is this thing that I'm looking at? And it was white made out of a very cheap acetate material and all of a sudden it hit me it was a kkk robe and um it didn't have the hood with it that is kept in a separate space it was just the actual robe and sash and it kind of took my breath away it's um because i was not expecting it all of a sudden you know you're going through tuxedos and suits and things like that and you come across something that represents such a vile and hateful thing and obviously because I was off-site and I didn't have access to a computer and information I didn't know what this was or why did we had this what did this mean so later when you know I was back at the museum and could look things up what I found was this robe um, had been donated to us um in 1978 and it had been worn in 1975 by an undercover agent working for the state of Illinois legislative investigating commission who had been infiltrating and investigating the KKK in the mid 70s here in Illinois. Um, I don't have a lot more information on exactly what he did or that kind of thing. This, uh, what I can tell you from looking at the garment, it hasn't been worn that much. Um, my guess is the gentleman, the undercover agent, didn't wear it very often. But because we are a history museum, we collect history. And sometimes it's represented through a carriage, uh, a vase. Sometimes it's represented through high fashion. Sometimes it's represented through an object like this. We also, because where the historical society, we take a lot of papers, collections and records from lawyers and politicians. And I have come across when the archivists find things that don't belong in archives, they send them to me. And there was a civil rights lawyer who had collected and had donated when he retired all of his things. And there was a very small child size white power t-shirt and neo-Nazi armbands that he had collected. You know, he was this civil rights lawyer and you know he had gone to some rally to observe it and collected these pieces. And they are haunting and they are shocking when you first see them. And usually I'm dealing with hats and fun things or jewelry or beautiful things so every once in a while you come upon that and you're just like okay you know it, it really makes history real and you 
see the power that is imbued in some of these objects, um, you really feel it off of something like that. I personally do than something, you know, like a, a beautiful hat or something, because, you know, the symbolism and um, the power that these things hold. And, um, you know, it's important to remember this history. I think we're all kind of realizing that now and to collect that kind of history and to collect the clothing of everyday people. Our collection and our museum realizes that we have vast unrepresented people in the community of, you know, the makeup Chicago that are not represented in our collection. And the way that museum collecting has changed over the past 100 years is really reflected in our collection. And we need to change with that and make sure that we're representing so many more different people. And I also have realized doing this job this collection, my collection, has a lot of pieces that do represent the everyday person, um, minorities, and other people, in other times and places and people, but that telling that history is much harder than telling the history of couture, Dior, that history is a lot easier because everybody, you know, writes books on Chanel or Dior and there's a lot of information out there that's easily accessible. But telling the history of wash dresses and manufacturing in Chicago in the 1930s is a lot harder because nobody saved that information or telling the story of immigrant communities and smaller tailors and dressmakers is a lot harder because you have to do a lot of work to, you know, to flesh that out and research and tell that story. And I have to do a lot of work to find it in the collection because it hasn't been well cataloged or documented since it was brought in. So a lot of it's there, but it requires a lot of work to dig it out and tell its story. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Petra was on last season and she spoke to this too as a museum, as a curator at a museum. And I think a lot of museums are just kind of because of, you know, the events of the last summer of, of 2020, Black Lives Matter, all that stuff. A lot of museums are coming to terms with, you know, how do we tell a more diverse, wider range of stories, right? And especially if you're working with an object-based collection. But I think the fact that these conversations are happening and that you know, collections and, and managers of collections and curators are, are really beginning to realize that and um, take stock of that um, is really the first step in moving forward. And it's it's kind of exciting to think of, of all of these stories that haven't been told. I mean, maybe somebody listening to this podcast is going to say, well, maybe I'm the one who's going to do the deep dive into these wash dresses and share that information with the Chicago Museum. So I think if anything, it's just telling our listeners, look, there's so many more stories to be told. And why don't you be the one to tell them or to manage them in a collection like Jessica. Yeah, if anybody needs a an idea for a thesis, a, a master's thesis or a doctoral <laughs> thesis, I've got some weird areas that need exploration. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for taking so much time to be with us and to share this wonderful collection and give us this behind the scenes glimpse into what you do. Thank you so much. 
thank you so much for having me on here. And um, I would say if anybody would like to learn more about the Chicago History Museum, you can go to our website at chicagohistory.org. Um, from there, we have our online collection. We also have a incredible digital collection of photographs. Um, we own millions and millions of photographs from different newspapers, different collections, different professional photographers that you can view there and really see images of everyday life in Chicago to, you know, the architecture, to the skyline, um, to, you know, famous people in Chicago. So please definitely go there and check everything out. Absolutely. And we'll put a link in our show notes. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on Dress for this really insightful look into the job of a collections manager and also the incredible breadth of objects and the stories that are, are enmeshed in, in your collection. And we've talked to a lot of curators on past episodes of Dress, so it's really nice to talk to a collections manager because we really get to learn more about the other types of jobs available within the you know fashion and dress museum world curator, conservator, collections manager. I mean, there's so many jobs uh, and they all really cater to a wide variety of interests and talents. So I guarantee Jessica's job and her clear enthusiasm for what she does inspired more than one budding future fashion and dress collections manager. And on that note, thank you for joining us today, all of our listeners, and of course, Jessica. Uh, maybe you all will consider the stories behind the clothes that you wear next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where of course you find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.